Countdown for blastoff. X minus five, minus four, minus three, minus two, X minus one. Fire! Today I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Patrick Moore, one of the original founding members of Greenpeace. Dr. Moore, in fact, was a member of the Don't Make a Wave Committee. That's an organization begun in 1969 that opposed the H-bomb nuclear testing that was occurring in Amchitka, off the coast of Alaska in the north. Dr. Moore, as a member of the Don't Make a Wave Committee, uh, was one of the original members of the group, which later turned into Greenpeace. Now, Dr. Moore, in turn, was on the inaugural voyage of the Greenpeace. That's the ship that Greenpeace is named after. He went on to become president of Greenpeace Canada and a director of Greenpeace International. In our interview today, Dr. Moore is going to tell us about growing up as a child in Winter Harbor in North Vancouver Island, through his schooling, um, up to uh, through his years in Greenpeace. In fact, um, as uh, one of the original members of Greenpeace and president, uh, Dr. Moore was on the Rainbow Warrior the day it was sunk by the French government, as it was tied up in New Zealand. Shortly after that is when Dr. Moore left Greenpeace, and from that time onward, he's gone on to do consulting work and, and represent companies, some of which, it's argued, are, with interest, directly opposed to his original Greenpeace work, uh, a proponent today of nuclear energy, of fish farming, of logging and mining, albeit done uh, sensibly and and environmentally responsibly, as he describes it. Um, Dr. Moore is a proponent as well of genetically modified foods. Many criticize Dr. Moore's position today as being anathema, or perhaps traitorous, compared to the original stance he took in Greenpeace, you know, opposing the uh, H-bomb testing in Amchitka, the French H-bomb testing in Mururoa, um, Save the Whales work, opposing uh, the seal harvesting in eastern Canada, and so on. Well, I'll leave that for others to form their opinions on. Today, we're going to let Dr. Moore explain uh, his influences and his interests and his opinions on environmentalism in his own words. Now, if you've read the 2010 book by Dr. Moore called Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, The Making of a Sensible Environmentalist, the interview is going to follow the first half of that book. Part one, essentially, is going to be about Dr. Moore's influences up until the time he left Greenpeace. We'll have a part two at a future date. One thing I want to confess uh, right out of the gate is I did do a, a lot of research prior to this interview, and, for example... You know, I read, uh, beside reading Dr. Moore's books, I also read uh, numerous articles on him written by others. So if you Google Dr. Patrick Moore and Greenpeace, a number of articles will come up, you know, two of which stand out, you know, articles in The Guardian um, in uh, by George Monbiot in December 2010, uh, also an article in Wired magazine back in 2004 by Drake Bennett. Well, I read those articles, they take a somewhat contrary view to Dr. Moore's work, and they express some fairly harsh criticism of Dr. Moore and his, his position on the environmental issues today. I really wanted to, to see past that, and to be honest, I was really quite biased and willing to, to be converted. If there was going to be a road to Damascus conversion occurring in my heart, I was thinking it's going to be Dr. Moore that does it, and I'll tell you why. I don't say it makes sense. I don't say it's rational, but let me explain. In my research, this is what uh, I've revealed. 
It would be also what he told us in his own words in the interview. He grew up in a small island community, took a boat to school every day. So did I. Favorite show growing up, Spanking Our Gang. Favorite books that he read, Books of Knowledge. Check and check. I'd watch Spanking Our Gang, KVOS 12 every morning at 8, every afternoon at 4. Uh, likewise, I had both sets of Books of Knowledge. His uh, grandparents on his mother's side were both socialists. Well, so were mine. They actually ran a, uh, a fishing co-op. Now, on his father's side, his uh, father was uh, owned and ran a logging camp. Well, I had family in logging as well. Beyond that, his his father's sister was a talented a talented artist, but she was forbidden to go to New York, where she was invited to uh, train and advance her art career. That had a strong effect on, on her, and um, Dr. Moore talks about that. Well, you know what? My grandfather had his sister as well. Um, same thing. Uh, she was invited, in fact, to uh, to do work with uh, Norman Rockwell. Didn't pan out. Wasn't a woman's place to do that in her father's mind. It really messed her up, and it really affected uh, her relationship with my grandfather as well. You know, one of his earliest books read was Why I'm Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell. Well, my grandfather knew Bertrand Russell, and one of the uh, books that really formed my views in Christianity was uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Well, anyway, I ended up coming to the same conclusion about Christianity that, that Dr. Moore did. You know, going beyond that, there's just too much in common there. I was thinking if anyone's going to change my opinion on things, this would be the man to do it. It didn't happen. Anyway, I wanted to get that off my chest, though, because really, what are the odds of having that much in common? Well, you know, having said that, he's more successful, he's wealthier, and he's more accomplished than I am. So these are, are, are interesting similarities, but... They're surface deep. Let's jump into the interview now, and we'll join the interview in progress, where Dr. Moore is going to tell us about his time growing up. Hope you enjoy the interview, and like always, please write in, let me know what you think about the interview afterwards. Today I just thought we'd begin by having a conversation uh, about your, your well, when you started out, really. Um, from uh, Greenpeace, the your first group you were with was the Pacific Salmon Society, and then the Don't Make a Wave Committee, and then Greenpeace. And I really wanted to focus on that period of time to to begin with. Um, how does that sound to you? Did you have any questions? That's, no, that, that's just fine, Greg. I was also a director of the British, British Columbia chapter of the Sierra Club in those early years too. Uh, so I, I was pretty much involved with all of the budding or nascent. Uh, little environmental groups that were starting to spring up, and they were the first ones that ever existed in Vancouver, and the same thing was happening in San Francisco and some other places. I was reading your 2010 book, Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, and what really interested me right uh, as soon as I picked it up was your childhood growing up in Winter Harbor, and it sounds as though you had quite an eclectic uh, set of influences from your parents and your grandparents, and and also, it must have been beautiful growing up there. I was wondering if you could start by just telling me about that. Well, you know, I did have a very unique uh, and idyllic childhood uh, for at least my generation. Uh, not many people my age grew up on a small floating village on a windswept inlet on the northwest tip of Vancouver Island with no road to it. Uh, very similar in, in, in Canada to 
the, the Newfoundland outport only on the west coast of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything was about boats, and everything was about being down the dock and getting on and off boats, because uh, there were actually two villages in this little inlet called Winter Harbor. One was the fishing village, which was closer to the outside sea. It was just inside the harbor. And the other was the logging camp where I grew up. And it was it was a, a company town, so to speak, but it was a town of only about 50 people, uh, all living on floats uh, in houses and bunkhouses on floats on, on, on the inlet tied up to the shore. And, and that was so that the, the logging camp could be moved around the inlet as the trees were cut along the shoreline. And uh, so it was it was a completely unique situation. And most of my childhood was either down the dock or on the beach or sometimes playing in the clearings from where, where they had cut the timber because it, it, it didn't go inside the forest all that much. It was dark and cold as it was uh, in that climate. And so you preferred to be out in the open. Uh, and on the tide flats, especially when the tide went out really low, there were these huge tide flats that you could walk out on. And uh, you just spend your time looking at the things that were living there and uh, being in the fresh air. Uh, when I was uh, 10 years old, I got my first outboard motor, which a two-horse Johnson. Uh, and my mom had a small skiff that she rode, so I got to put this two-horse Johnson on this skiff and it was just like a young kid getting a bicycle for the first time. Uh, I was free, and I could go around the inlet and go out to the little islands that were off the shore where our home was. And the other thing that was very lucky about my childhood was I grew up for the first seven years on the floating camp, but then when the timber had been largely cut around the shoreline, my dad leased the what we call Indian reserves, the or First Nations today, he leased their village site. They had long abandoned, long ago abandoned it during the terrible epidemic of measles and smallpox that swept through uh, quite late in British Columbia in the 1910s and 20s and decimated the, the native population. And they had all consolidated at a village some distance away. So he was able to lease this village site, which, which they'd been there for 5,000 years. So they, they had picked the best site in the whole of Winter Harbor for their village, and that's where I then began uh, growing up at age 7 till 14 when I went away to boarding school in Vancouver. But I came back to that village all through my schooling years, and it was amazing. I mean, there were these islands out in front of it, one of which was the burial island. The native people where I'm from on the west coast of D.C. buried their people on platforms. Well, they didn't bury them. They, They put them on platforms in trees so that the eagles and ravens and crows would consume them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and the remains of all that was still there when, when we arrived and went ashore, and my dad cleared a village site, and there was the family houses down near the water and the single men's bunkhouses up above. Uh, and even at that time, of course, there was no road out, so people had to come in by boat, uh, which took two days from Vancouver, or by float plane eventually, uh, but no, you only went out once a year, uh, and that was around the Christmas season. So everybody would go out for four to six weeks over the Christmas season and then come back and live there in this isolated village the whole time. And, you know, I, I passed my time skipping rocks and throwing rocks into the, into the ocean, which uh, in B.C. we call a salt chuck, chuck meaning 
water in uh, the native language. And uh, that's kind of how I grew up uh, and went to school by boat every day, too, because the, the school, the one-room school, was in Winter Harbor, uh, which is a fishing village. And so it was a, about a half-hour trip by the, the little tugboat that my dad had for towing the booms around. Uh, the tugboat operator would every morning take us to school, and then we could see him coming down the inlet after school, and that would be our signal to run down the dock and get on the boat and go back home again. It must be very exciting. Maybe Well, it was like a dream world, and right when I think about it now, it was like I was living in a, in a, in a garden of Eden in a kind of dream world with no cares, no worries. The biggest worry I would have was that something to do with my boat, you know, there wouldn't be much to worry about. Mm -hmm. No, it really does sound beautiful. I was born a little bit after you. I grew up on Bowen Island and I went to, to school in, in Horseshoe Bay. And so we had, uh, when the ferry wasn't running, we'd have water taxis to go back and forth. And um, when I look back on it now, and I think it would be similar for you, I think about all the things that you did or I did. And now being a city person, it's hard to imagine a seven or a ten-year-old running around all alone on the shore on the floating camps. Um, things have changed a little bit now from a, a parent's point of view, but it, as a child, it's it's beautiful, isn't it? Yes, and actually, I you know my when I when I met Eileen, my wife of forty years, uh, while I was uh, in in the beginning of Greenpeace and doing my PhD in ecology. Uh, we went back to Winter Harbor, and I'd been going there every summer uh, as well over yeah. the years. But we went back. We went back and lived there, and built a small cabin on the beach on our family's property, which we still uh, go to all the time today. So, uh, the, and the village hasn't changed that much. Actually, when the ra road came in in 1965, I'd say there were 100 people between the logging camp and the fishing village, and we thought, oh boy, now this place is going to boom. Half the people use the road to get out, and <laughs> It was a surprising lesson in human nature uh, because, you know, those people didn't really want to be living in a really isolated place. They wanted to be able to go to a shopping mall and uh, and a theater. Uh, although my dad did show Hollywood movies twice a week, uh, he, he ordered them by, by the freight uh, on 16-millimeter reels and ran the projector himself twice a week in what we called the show hall. And everybody came to the movie, of course, and there were always shorts and cartoons and then a feature film, and he was a real movie buff, so he knew all the, you know, Bogart, Humphrey Bogart movies and whatever else, and he brought them all in there for everybody. So we did have entertainment, yeah. but still in the same, uh, when the road came, a lot of people used it to get out, and today there is nowhere near as many people in Winter Harbor as there were when I was a child. There's no school there anymore. There is a post office and a gas dock and a general store and a liquor store uh, in the general store, but there's hardly hardly any permanent residents there anymore, and there's no no not really any families there anymore because there's no school there anymore. Hmm. Well, yeah. As a child, what uh, what movies do you remember watching? What made an impression on you back then? Any favorites? Oh, uh, well, I like the shorts actually because I you know being a kid you don't have as long an attention span. I guess no. I like the Three Stooges and Our Gang. Uh, oh yeah, gang. spanking Our Gang. Yeah, thank you for getting. Yeah, that was just wonderful, and uh, and and I and, and there was a, a space one too. Uh, what's the name of that very hokey space uh, short? I can't remember now, but it, it was a, a science fiction type thing. Sure. And uh, 
we, we uh, you know, I had some funny memories from then. Uh, one, my dad would show this film to everybody, and he was the boss of the logging camp. He owned it. And uh, one one night when I was about six, the kids all were up on front on benches, and the adults were all behind in more comfortable chairs. I stood up on the bench when my dad was changing the reel, looked back at the entire audience of about you know 40 or 50 people, and said, my dad is the boss of this whole camp. He's the boss of everybody here, which actually wasn't true because there were some fishermen there from the village because they would come in their fish boats to our dock and come to the movie. So my dad hauled me out on the porch. He must have been mortified. (laughs) He came running running down the aisle, (laughs) grabbed me by one arm and lifted me up and took me out to the front steps and gave me a couple of good whacks and brought me back in. And I'm sure everybody got quite a kick out of it. But it was it was really really one of those out of the mouths of babes moments. Yeah. So you learned to discretion at a young age. Uh, yes, <laughs> the hard way. Now you mentioned fishing, and and your your mom, her your grandparents on your mom's side, they were involved in fishing as well. Is that correct? Yes. Well, they lived in the fishing village. Uh, my granddad Art and his wife Mary uh, had uh, been been born in Port Alberni, which is just further south. It's a bigger yeah. town. And they had set out uh, like pioneers and his three brothers, too. So there were four families, all with kids, who settled in Winter Harbor in the, in the late 1930s, uh, which was the first time there was European settlement there. There was a few, a few other families of fishermen, too. And then shortly after, my granddad, Albert, the logger, came there and established the logging camp, which my dad eventually took over and which is actually still running today with my little brother operating it. And... Uh, so Granddad Art and, and Mary, uh, and Granny Mary, were uh, really classic uh, dirty 30s uh, socialists from the, the, from the time of the Depression. Uh, and the big fishing companies uh, paid peanuts for the fish. And so he was, my Granddad Art was in on the beginning of the cooperative movement on the coast, the, the uh, Cayuga Fishermen's Co-op, which eventually became the Prince Rupert Fisherman's Co-op, was a big cooperative of fishermen where you only got part of your money uh, up front, and then at the end of the season, uh, the, 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 the money was divided up according to how much you'd caught among everybody. And, and they, they did better because there was nobody taking a profit from it. Uh, and so on that side, on my mom's side, they were pretty strong socialists uh, and, and working-class people. And on my dad's side, he was the boss of the camp. He owned it. He'd inherited from his dad. He was more of a business-oriented person, and you might say believed in capitalism and free markets and all that sort of thing. So it led to some pretty lively discussions around the living room and the dinner table as everybody in, 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 our, in my family uh, spoke up for themselves and voiced their opinion. Uh, everybody was pretty well read, especially my mom and dad. I mean, they, they subscribed to a lot of magazines, and they read a lot of books. I remember my dad reading the entire set of Churchill's History of the Second World War, which was about four feet long on the shelf. Yeah, yeah and, those are great uh, books. And, and so, he, you know, I grew up, and, and I, I was given a set of the books of knowledge when I was around eight, I guess, and I think I read every single entry in, mm-hmm. uh, in that big set of 20 volumes or so. Which ones? And, the and, the, and the, the really uh, thick ones with the soft red cover or the skinnier ones with the darker red cover? Do you remember which ones you had? 
Gee, I think I had the darker ones. They were they weren't they were only about an inch and a bit. Yeah, those ones. Yeah, in the from the twenties, yeah. I think they were. Yeah, those. Are I had the books. full set. Yeah, the full set of those. And in and the, in there, that's that's when I got really interested in the solar system and astronomy and uh, and, and you know by by age twelve, I was writing essays, illustrated essays about the planets and how big they were and how far away they were and what they were made out of and all that sort of thing. So I, I, I developed an, an interest in nature and science at an early age in Winter Harbor. Uh, and my, of course, my mom and dad encouraged that. They were both also very interested in, in the world around them. Uh, and so by the time I was sent away to boarding school at age 14, uh, I went to a, an English-style boarding school in Vancouver called St. George's, where you wore a uniform and a tie and all of that. And... Uh, I, there I excelled in science and was in the top of my class, most of the, you know, in the top two or three of my class. Uh, and, and, and I really, enjoy, I, I really did thrive there and enjoyed it immensely and, and learned to be a city kid because uh, I was pretty uh, green around the years when I arrived in Vancouver from living in Winter Harbor all my childhood. <clears throat> well, as a kid, been, too, arriving there from, from Winter Harbor... Um, how do you fit in that immediately? Because I imagine you'd be amongst a bunch of city kids and you'd be perceived as an island kid. Uh, but how did that play out when you first arrived? Well, it wasn't too bad because every winter we had gone to Vancouver and we stayed with my dad's mom, Berna, who was an artist uh, and lived in a home in, in Vancouver in the city. And actually some years when we went out for six or eight weeks, they would put me in the school, the, the junior school, uh, the, the the primary school, and then yeah, they probably be in grades five, six, seven, eight around yeah. there. Um, they put me in a school, in a city school. So I had had experience in in the city and had friends. Actually, I had already had friends in the city, and 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 also at St. George's, a lot of the kids there were from out in the sticks because their parents couldn't. Uh, they, there was no, you know, the school. They were coming from somewhere where their parents were farmers or or loggers or miners where there was no appropriate school for their kids to go to beyond grade eight or so. And so they were sent there. And, and so a lot of them and I had kind of common understanding of things. So it was a, it was a very good experience. And, and within six months, I was just one of the gang and made all, a lot of my, I still have friends from them, uh, very close friends from them. And, uh, and, and even, even though I don't really have a lot of friends from my eight years in university, I have still got a lot of friends from my time at that boarding school. Well, before we jump ahead to university, let's go back to those debates you'd have in the, the living room. What side did you come down on? On your, were you with your grandparents and, and mom on the socialist side, or with your father on the more business side? What was your opinion back then? Well, actually, I, I think I was able to learn from both sides of that discussion. Uh, I've always been uh, down the middle politically. Uh, I'm, I tend to be fairly liberal on the social issues and tend to be fairly conservative on the economic ones. Uh, and, of course, on the environmental, I've always said that the only solution is to come down the middle and you have to borrow the best ideas from the left and right of the spectrum when it comes to trying to figure out how to bring environmental values into the mainstream of, of society. Because... Uh, and so I think I, I think I learned to have a balanced perspective from growing up in that way. The the other element, of course, was my grandmother Verna, 
uh, my dad's mom, who was born a Catholic back east, was was recommended by her teachers to go to art school in New York, and her dad would have nothing to do with it, a woman's place is in the home and all that. And so she floundered at age 17, 18, ended up pregnant out of wedlock, was sent by the nuns to Vancouver to a nunnery, completely abandoned from her family. Her child was given away to an older sister in Los Angeles, and she uh, eventually ended up meeting... My grandfather, Albert, 20 years older than her, she was 20 and he was 40 when they got married. And they didn't really live together all that much during their relationship. So she was a little bit whacked out uh, in, because of her experience in life. She was a wonderful person in some ways. She was an incredible artist. She should have gone to art school in New York because she became an oil painter in later years in her life and, and painted paintings that people wanted to hang in the lobbies of big buildings downtown. And uh, she landscapes mostly. And uh, she she also was an amazing seamstress. And on the other hand, she was con- she she was a, a bit twisted uh, in her psychology, and she she uh, basically drove my dad crazy for most of his life, and almost outlived him. Uh, so it was sad to see that aspect of it. And I had a fiery relationship with her, although I I did love her. Uh, but she was she was she had converted from Catholicism to Christian Science. Uh, during this whole tumultuous period uh, when she was young. And uh, but she was a bit duplicitous. When she gets sick, you're in the Christian science, you're not allowed to see doctors. No. So when she got sick, she, when she got sick she'd revert to Catholicism and go see a doctor <laughs> and, and then go back to her, Chris, her Christian science, which I never understood. Well, she, she struck a compromise. She, she went down the middle. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but she also, what she did teach me was, I, I, I was brought up in a in a completely uh, secular home. My my mother could even be described as an atheist, although agnostic is a word I would I would tend to use. And my dad was certainly not a religious person. In your book, uh, I mean, you mentioned in your book, and you don't you don't get into it much, but you mention it, so I think it was significant to you. One of, one of the first books your mom gave you was uh, Bertrand Russell's "Why I'm Not a Christian." What effect did that have on you? Well, I already wasn't a Christian, but uh, what it, the effect it had on me was to see how incredibly logical Bertrand Russell was. No, he was great. And, yeah. And, and, and it turned me on to him uh, instantly. And so I, the next book I read was called, I think, On Authority and the Individual, which is about the, the challenge of uh, being a good community member while at the same time having individual freedom to do what you want to do. And not be bossed around by everybody all the time, and uh, that was fantastic too. But I gradually drifted away from his social writing into his science writing. Our knowledge of the external world, I thought, was a brilliant piece of work because it really did illustrate that we do only have five senses. As some people say, they have a sixth, and maybe they do, but we only have so many senses, and they're only able to perceive a very small range of what you might call the reality that we are in. And it, it taught me that, that even though we, we, we think we can see everything and, and hear everything and touch everything, we're not really. Uh, we're just getting a, 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 some sensations from what is reality out there. And uh, so I, I learned a lot from reading him and, 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 and learned about the scientific method through him. 
I, I could never understand calculus, so I, I was not able to, to fathom uh, Principia Mathematica, which he wrote with Alfred Lord Whitehead, which is, is his great work of logic uh, and mathematics. Uh, but I understood it, uh, at least conceptually. Sure, you don't have to uh, integrate and, a uh, function to, to appreciate the book. Exactly. And, and uh, so I, that, that was when I was about 15, 16. That was the beginning of what I would say was my formal education in science and, and an understanding mm. of how science works. That's very interesting. Did you read uh, the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity? Sorry, what was the title? Uh, Mere Christianity. That's a C.S. Lewis book from, I think, the 40s. You know, I read that when no, I was... I I read that when I, I was a kid, and it had the same effect on me as Why I'm Not a Christian, the Bertrand Russell book. Yes, well, you know, in contemporary, Christopher Hitchens was one of my favorite writers until he died. Uh, now I'd say Matt Ridley is up mm. there on the top of that list. But also Andrew Mumford. Uh, so there, there, these contemporary atheists have influenced my way of thinking about mm. how we should react in, in public policy Issues, uh, etc., et and and the, the you know we were actually at dinner last night. Uh, we were talking about this very subject about why people need religion uh, and how how uh, science has been twisted in a number of areas quite severely lately, and and is being turned into a kind of religious uh, element. So that, that 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 theme of trying to understand. The lines between religion and political ideology and logic and science, uh, those are three key categories, I think, where there's a lot of blurring that goes on. Yeah, they get conflated. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, of course, in many countries, the religious leaders are the rulers, are the political rulers. And the whole, I, I discuss in my book, the whole question of the separation of church and state uh, and, and, and how... In many people's thinking, I, I, I believe uh, that, that this whole idea of separating church and state and having actual democracy that stems from the Magna Carta is foreign to the Middle East, for example. They, they simply don't have any history of anything like that ever happening. Where, uh, and so they don't think that way. They don't. It doesn't dawn on them. And this whole problem in in the Middle East of, of the West trying to I wouldn't say force, but trying to influence democracy on these cultures, uh, it, it, it may be a long time before it happens because it just doesn't seem to come to them naturally. Well, yeah, I mean, it has to happen authentically. It, it seems to be the lesson that's emerging. If it's imposed on a person from without, it doesn't seem to take. No, on the other hand, uh, how can we tolerate that persecution of women and uh, and children, girls, and how can we tolerate the ignorance that, that leads to millions of people dying unnecessarily from malnutrition and these sorts of things, and, you know, the, these these African leaders saying that AIDS isn't real, uh, and then no doubt spreading mm -hmm. it themselves and <clears throat> their own families. Or uh, driving it, damages it, the it, uterus, it, I think is another one. It, yes, it's it's, it's Pretty hard to to, uh, to to stay neutral about yeah. something like that. When you're at school, you you left St. George's and you went on to to UBC. Yes. Yeah? So and what did you study there? 
I, it was interesting, you know, because my first year of university, I went into science, into general science, and because I had been in a boarding school and kind of in a controlled environment, I did kind of go a bit crazy in first year. We stayed up drinking beer way too late most nights, and I was living with three other friends in, in two apartments in the same apartment building, two of us in each, so we, you know, we had a natural born party uh, right there every night. And we're eating craft dinner and drinking beer, and uh, we just had too much fun. And my marks slipped rather badly down to below 65% average, which and I'd been in the in, in the you know high 80s and low 90s all through my grade school, and uh, I I did not qualify for an entry into the Department of Engineering, which is what I had been planning to do, and because I, I thought that I would want to have a practical education with a science basis. Uh, so I, I, I was turned down. Uh, well, I didn't even apply because they, they made it clear you couldn't get in without higher marks. And just that, by coincidence, that summer, a friend of my father's, uh, a forest geneticist from UBC, Oscar Zeklai, had visited Winter Harbor. And I had had a chance to talk to him, and he said, "Well, why don't you come into the faculty of forestry? I mean, that's your dad's business and your background." And so I did, and so that was one of the best things that ever happened to me that I didn't get very good grades because it it put me on a path into life sciences rather than engineering. And so I all of a sudden realized how interesting forests were from the science point of view, because in forestry, of course, they also teach you how to build roads and. And, and do the logging part of it. But I was more interested in plant physiology and dendrology, which is the identification of trees by looking at the grain of the wood and things like that. And so Oscar took me under his wing, and uh, I finished my first year of forestry, but he realized that I was more academically oriented and less technically oriented. And so he streamed me into a combined honors bachelor of science with the Faculty of Science and the Faculty of Forestry together. So I took uh, life science courses in both in both the forestry and in agriculture, in fact, the Faculty of Agriculture and in the science. So I took human biochemistry, for example, which doesn't have much to do with forestry. So I got I started getting a more interdisciplinary, and that back then the word interdisciplinary was quite uh, popular within the university. A lot of profs thought that it was all it did was make you a mile wide and an inch deep, but uh, I, I really like the idea of, of connecting the dots uh, and the interdisciplinary approach. And before long, uh, a, a, a forest ecologist, uh, Vladimir Kraina, gave a noon lecture that I attended in which he presented the idea of ecology. And at that time, the word ecology was not known in the popular press. It simply had never been written, uh, 1969. Yeah, and, it was a fairly uh, obscure it, technical term at the time, wasn't it? It was. It was an obscure branch of biology that was, you know, it had originated in Russia in the study of soil science in the steppes. Uh, and it had come to America more as animal ecology, but it, it, there was a, such a thing as animal ecology. Uh, but no one knew about it, except for the academic world. And uh, in, in interesting, the same year... Uh, He's gone now, but Ben Metcalf, who was also on the first Greenpeace voyage, in 1969, as a uh, sort of, not retired, but, you know, a journalist who had uh, worked with, this, with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in, in Canada here for many, many years, but was in a kind of hiatus 
he discovered ecology too. I, had to, I didn't even know him yet. And he put up 12 billboards in Vancouver on main intersections that said ecology in huge letters. Look it up. You're involved. And so this was 1969 in Vancouver. It was just like someone had turned a light on in a bunch of people's brains at that point. And all these little emerging environmental groups were starting to happen. And at, by this time, I was just enrolled in doing my PhD in ecology. I had finished my honors bachelor of science in, 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 in biology and forestry and moved into, and, and, and there's, there's too many stories to tell here, but I had been accepted with honors and I, I received a Ford Foundation fellowship coming out of my bachelor of science years. And I could have gone to any university in the world with this Ford Foundation fellowship. And I chose Washington University in St. Louis because uh, the, one of the scientists there was the leading scientist in understanding photosynthesis. And at that time, I realized that by that time that photosynthesis was the sort of main miracle of life on Earth, at least in the last three and a half billion years since uh, chlorophyll and chloroplasts evolved in, in, in unicellular plankton in the sea uh, and learned to use the sun to make sugar. Uh, with air and water and a little bit of mineral. And so I, I knew that this was where I wanted to go. And I got to St. Louis in my Volkswagen microbus with my Afro out and my anti-Vietnam War attitude. And uh, I just I just had to turn around and go back because uh, it just they just burnt down the whole middle of the city in the Martin Luther King assassination riots. Mm -hmm. and now, now grad students were being drafted into the Vietnam War and I would be... A, you know, about the only one in the whole school who wasn't under threat of the draft, and I didn't like that idea. And the mood was bad among the students. Uh, it, it, it just, I just, I realized what a, you know, I sort of like the Hobbit, uh, Bilbo mm -hmm. the Hobbit, uh, coming out from the Shrier and finding out that there was a big bad world out there. You wanted to go back uh, to I the did, Hobbit hole, yes. I did go back to my hobbit hole, and I convinced my professors to let me do my Ph.D. at UBC, which, you know, most people don't do their undergraduate and graduate work at the same university. But I ended up doing that because it was late in the summer by the time I had to make this decision. And uh, they let me, and what, again, what a wonderful coincidence that was, because I had really good professors, and I got to stay in Vancouver instead of being flung out into some mid Midwest situation where I don't know where I would have ended up if I actually followed that path. Uh, I got to stay where I was born, more or less, and uh, where, I where I loved it, the, na the nature of the West Coast. And uh, I got to, to, to have some really good profs because I, I was allowed to do an interdisciplinary PhD in ecology in which I took courses, for example, environmental law and resources law from the law faculty. So I met law professors really top-notch ones and I did ocean I did some oceanography courses in the faculty of oceanography and I did mineral engineering and to understand mining pollution and I did economics and I did some more ecology uh, so I, I got to do a wide range of studies and my PhD thesis was an interdisciplinary thesis on the administration of pollution control in my province of British Columbia with a focus on the mining industry because there was a big issue going on at that time with a huge copper mine coming in. So that and, was uh, uh, Utah mining and smelting of San Francisco and the open pit mine, and they were going to be, they, is that right? 
Is that the yes, one? That's, it was, and it was very close to where I grew up in Winter Harbor. Uh, and they proposed to dump 30,000 tons of mine tailings into mm-hmm. the inlet. 40,000, I think. Yeah, 40,000. Yeah, 40, it, yeah. it ended up actually being more than that. It, 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 mine, the mine increased in size in later years. And, uh, but they told and I everybody thought, it a, would be all right. Yeah, well, they, they told everybody it would be all right, but they were wrong about how <laughs> how it would be all right. Uh, in fact, in the end, I agreed that it, you know, in later years, I agreed that it actually was all right, what they what they did. It was better than any of the other alternatives, except having no mine. Uh, they had to do, you have to do something with the tailings from a mine. And uh, actually, there's, there's a whole new technique developed called dry stack tailing storage, where they actually use a vacuum to suck the water out of the tailings, and basically then it's dry sand and can be can actually be contoured into new landscape. Uh, and, and is not uh, all full of water, and and is not a you know it's not a threat that it would have a catastrophic uh, flow, like has happened with a number of tailings uh, impoundments around the world over the years, when the tailing dam breaks. Mm-hmm. In this case, with dry stack tailing, you don't need a dam; you just have basically you've got sand, and uh, it's a whole new uh, technique. But anyways, back then, back then I was wild-eyed and, and radicalized, and uh, and I saw this as a perfect subject for my PhD thesis to study the the political process, the social process, the environmental process, and it was the first time there were public hearings about the environmental effect of an industrial development in British Columbia. The Pollution Control Act had only just come in, and the director of pollution control uh, had the authority to hold hearings at his discretion, uh, and in this case, 164 people sent what was called an objection to the uh, application for a permit to dump these 40,000 tons of tailings into Rupert Inlet, and uh, I objected. As my professor said, yeah, sure, get involved in the process, and that, that's why you'll find out how it works and what happens. So I was one of the 164. Well, when the, when the pollution control off, uh, man decided to have a public hearing, he only allowed four of the 164 objectors to be heard. And three of those were just lay people. Um, Lots of experts had, and and university professors and stuff had decided to join in this process and comment on it. But no, they weren't uh, chosen. Only three lay people and one organization, the Pacific Salmon Society of D.C., and they were a really sort of mild organization. They weren't like the budding uh, activist environmental groups, all, all of whom had also uh, applied to be heard at the hearing. And so the Pacific Salmon Society was the only group that had been given standing. And so I phoned them up and invited and got myself invited to a board meeting of the Salmon Society and told them what I knew about the issue and they made me vice president that evening and uh, authorized me to represent them at the hearings. And so I went to these hearings and kind of blew wide open the story that they had been telling about these tailings that they were all going to settle to the bottom really nicely. Well, because your they PhD the- thesis and your, your research proved that, no, they wouldn't. They'd, they'd uh, circulate up and down the column. Um, well, I, I, I knew that right from the start, long before they started putting them in there, because I, I found some research that had been done on the oceanographic nature of Rupert Inlet, 
and it was clear that it was mixed from top to bottom by the tidal flows. And, uh, and, and so they said it was stratified into layers of differing density, which is true for many water bodies, but not this one. And it's very unique in that regard. It's, it's more mixed than you'd find very many other water bodies around the world. And so they had it exactly wrong. And these consultants from San Francisco, are supposed to be experts, were saying these things. And uh, I went into the uh, hearing and kind of blew them out of the water because I said, here's the data, here's the facts. And uh, I got in the newspapers. And so all of a sudden now I, I was part of the political aspect of this thing, this grad student interfering in the affairs of state. And uh, before long, my supervisor, Hamish Kimmons, a brilliant forest ecologist who was the head of my PhD thesis committee, came to me and said, hey, Pat, the dean says that somebody pretty high up in BC uh, society has advised him that an that unless you change the nature of your inquiry, you're not going to get a job in industry or government when you finish this PhD here. Well, and and two of the people on your thesis committee were hired as consultants to this uh, to the industry as well, weren't they? Three, actually. I three. had six people on my committee, and by the end of it, after three years of, of study, uh, my thesis committee had kind of changed in its makeup because one guy resigned and another guy came on, and the new guy that came on was hired by the mining company as a consultant. And so by the end of it, three people out of the six were squarely on the side of the mining company. And telling you if you want to get a job when you graduate, think about this. Yeah, well, that, that was earlier on that I had yeah. to decide whether I was going to continue with this so-called, quote, nature of my inquiry. And, uh, and I was, you know, maybe a bit brash at that age and just said, to heck with you. Of course I'm going to continue with the nature of my inquiry. I got... I got a tiger by the tail here, and uh, so I did finish my thesis. I went into my oral defense, and it was three against three to whether or not to grant me my degree. And I, and I said, well, what's wrong with my thesis? And the three other guys mumbled away about some things, but they didn't really have much to say. And so for a few months, my the, the guys on my side who were actually being scientific about it, uh, tried to get those guys to write down what they didn't like. And really nothing much was coming, but they were just stalling. They, they wouldn't give their okay. So the dean of graduate studies, a, a very uh, prominent academic named, named McTaggart Cowan, uh, he, he, he chose an independent adjudicator, uh, Irving Fox, who was head of a big uh, sustainability-type uh, uh, organization, he chose Irving Fox to come in and adjudicate, and Irving came down on my side within a very short time. And so I, I got my PhD, but it took a year of uh, wrangling. Uh, and by this time, I was sick and tired of the whole process. I didn't want mm. a job in industry or government anyways. And I went home to Winter Harbor with my newly acquainted wife, Eileen, and uh, as we fell in love the day we met and, and, and never parted since, uh, I went back to Winter Harbor, and we, we sort of did a back-to-the-land type of thing, although it was a bit different because my dad owned a logging camp, and I had a good job to go to there. Uh, and we built a house. We lived in, in, in the camp and built a house on the beach and had a grand old time. Mm. Now, when you say back to the land in the 60s, I'm thinking commune. Are you meaning living back in uh, in the North Island? Yes, I went. Eileen and I went back to Winter Harbor. Ah, I see. 
can build well, you know, out. You described yourself as, you know, radicalized back then, but you said, a few minutes ago you used that word, but, you know, nothing about uh, what you just described sounds radical. It just sounds like you were right and the uh, mining company was wrong and you're getting pressured by the, your thesis committee. Yes, but I was also radicalized by this time about the Vietnam War and the threat of nuclear war. Uh, and so I, I was I was seeing the world in a in a big picture as well, and I truly was radicalized, and I I, I became a hippie. Uh, there's no question of that. Uh, but there was a group of us in Vancouver who were hippies and had all the outward appearance of being hippies, but were actually also intellectuals and uh, and 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 scientists and journalists and doctors and professionals. In other words, professionals. And if you look at the group of people on the first voyage of Greenpeace, they look like a bunch of hippies, uh, except for maybe Terry Simmons, who definitely wasn't a hippie and always has <laughs> resented the fact that, that, that we are described as a bunch of hippies because he's an academic and doesn't want to be a hippie. Uh, I think people unfairly use that word hippie as a pejorative term. I don't mean to imply that you are, but, but just to make it clear, I, I think many people use that as pejorative, but really... I mean, that was a different uh, time. People were tuned in. Well, I've said before, you know, it sounds like you were tuned in and turned on. You just didn't uh, drop out at that time. You were very actively engaged in in your community and, and actually with the environment back then. Is that Well, fair? yeah, but I did drop out uh, in the sense that I didn't go on to a traditional uh, uh, career uh, in industry or government, where I would end up being a deputy minister or a, a vice president of some company or whatever, I, I didn't go that way. I dropped out into the counterculture movement of the anti-war and and the environmental movement. Uh, but yeah, a, a lot of you know they they had the term "dirty hippie" back then because there were a lot of pretty scruffy people oh, who sure. were almost homeless, you know, semi-homeless, and. Yeah. Uh, and that we certainly weren't in that category. We were smart, uh, and we, 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 you know, there was a phrase back then which was pretty funny. Uh, we're out to smash capitalism, and we mean business. Well, I wasn't <laughs> out to smash capitalism, but I meant business. It's a nice and, kind of phrase. Uh, yeah, it is kind of fun, isn't it? <laughs> it's not my, not my bag, but uh, it was funny. I mean, uh, it's sort of like the question authority buttons that everybody was wearing back then. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good to do, though. I mean, people use words like smash business or radical. And I think, and again, you know, just in common language. And they use a throwaway word like that because it's so much easier than saying precisely what they mean. But in this case, it sounds like you're active in taking a stand against things. And and if we jump ahead now. Yeah, well, it was, it, it was kind of like early Occupy, you know, where yeah. smash capitalism and we mean business. It was the same exact sentiment. Uh, the anti-corporate, anti-business, anti-industry sentiment, which is still very strong within our society. Uh, but, I mean, Occupy is is also completely ridiculous in the sense I, I, I describe it as uh, trespassing in bad tense. And uh, it, it, it just doesn't do anything for me. I, 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 that is not what I would be part of. I would be doing something much more strategic than that. Mm. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Well, if we jump ahead, then you became involved with the Don't Make a Wave Committee, and you, and at that time you you started to uh, to meet, I think, in Kitsilano, 
with uh, the Stowe's, with the Bolins, and the people who later on were, along with you, foundational members of Greenpeace. But if we jump ahead, how did you get involved with the uh, the H-bomb testing in Amchitka? Tell me about how that came to your attention and, and what caused you to, to get involved and, and jump on that boat. Well, you know, actually, uh, looking back on it, I can't imagine what came over me. Uh, here I was, a comfy Ph.D. student on a beautiful green campus in Vancouver, uh, studying a very specific issue, but I had been radicalized. I, I remember seeing the engineers were writing Bomb the Kong on, in graffiti on buildings, and I was incensed by this, that my fellow students would be thinking this way, that we should be bombing the Viet Cong. And so I had, I had, as I say, really been radicalized against the Vietnam War, like so many Canadians were. I was helping with draft doctors and deserters coming into Canada to find them places to stay to, so they could get settled. And, uh, and then there was the whole Cold War and the, 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 the threat of all-out nuclear war, which gave me nightmares, along with a lot of other people back then. And uh, I wanted to do something. I've always wanted to do something. Um, uh, about things that I think are where there's injustice or where there's uh, the, the threat uh, of harm to, to, to so many people. Uh, I've always wanted to do something, and here was my chance because I saw this little wee article in the Vancouver Sun newspaper that showed a picture of the three guys that, that, that really formed the original Don't Make a Wave committee, Irving Stowe, Jim Bolin, and Paul Cote, uh, Jim and Irving's wives, Marie and Dorothy, were also very much involved, but they weren't sort of in the upfront of the publicity so much. And uh, here was this story saying they were going to sail a boat to Alaska to protest the U.S. hydrogen bomb test. And I just said, that's for me. Now, so just I went to, to the meeting. Just to, to uh, lay it out for our listeners, what was happening at that time is they were detonating in open air five megaton H-bombs. In Amchitka. These were, they, were actually, uh, they were actually underground, Greg. By this oh, time. I beg your pardon. It, which one was the overground? History. That was Mururoa. That was overground? Yes. And yes. that's our the next story. The history goes sort of, I think it was 1964 when the Limited Atmospheric Test Ban uh, Treaty, or whatever it was called, Test Ban Treaty, uh, where the United States, the Soviet Union, and Britain all agreed to stop testing nuclear weapons in the atmosphere. France did not sign that. And neither did China, and so, but at that, so, so the United States had been testing their atomic bombs in Nevada, uh, and and they continued to test atomic bombs in Nevada until the 90s underground. But hydrogen bombs are too big to test in Nevada. It would have broke every window in the casinos in Las Vegas if they had let off a five megaton bomb where they were testing their atomic bombs. Well, let me you know, ask the, you the a, a, Let me ask you a question, please. Yeah, if the mining company shouldn't be dropping its its tailings in the open ocean, and H bombs can't be uh, tested above ground in Mururoa or below ground in Amchitka, they said it was all right. What could be your objection to that? Well, yeah, it was kind of. It was sure it was all right. Uh, Arthur Schlesinger, who at that time was the head of the Atomic Energy Commission, which was responsible for nuclear weapons development. Uh, took his two small children to Amchitka on the day of the underground test to prove that hydrogen bombs were safe, as, as we joked. And uh, 
it was so laughable. I mean, they were the reason for testing these weapons was to prepare for a nuclear war. Sure. <laughs> and and to be using them, and uh, they're not harmless then. That's for sure. I mean, I, I I had I had already made a thorough study of the history of the development of the atomic bomb and of nuclear energy by this time, Oppenheimer and all of that. Yeah. And uh, I'd also made a pretty thorough study of the effects of the dropping those bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's a very interesting story right there. Not many people realize that the Hiroshima bomb was a uranium bomb, and the Nagasaki bomb was a plutonium bomb. Two completely different methods to produce a nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they just called them atomic bombs at the time, but they were fundamentally different technologies. And I believe that is why they dropped two bombs. One bomb would have been enough to show the Japanese that, that the United States meant business and could do it again. Uh, but they dropped two because they wanted to understand the impact uh, on civilians and on infrastructure. Uh, they wanted to see what it really did. And so twice as many people had to die uh, because there were two different technologies used in those two bombs. It was only six days later that they, that they dropped the bomb on Nagasaki. Hmm. And in between those two, about a couple of hundred thousand people died, and many hundreds of thousands of people survived. Uh, interestingly, the uh, the Radiation Effects Research Foundation, which was set up after those two bombs, to study the 100,000 100, of the survivors over time. Most of them are dead now, of course, but uh, they did not find a very large effect uh, post-survival. Many of those people received just about enough to kill you, but survived it, uh, even with bad burns and all of that. But even those people who received very, very high doses of radiation, uh, there was not a big difference between them and the 20,000 uh, people who they, they had as a control group who lived in Hiroshima and Nagasaki but were not there the day the bomb was dropped. So they had this control group to look at their whole life history, health history through their whole life too. And so they really are the best knowledgeable people at, at this uh, Radiation Effects Foundation on the relationship between radiation dose and health impact because with all these 100,000 people, they all know where they were when the bomb went off, so it's possible to, uh, to, to, to estimate the dose they received because how close they were to the epicenter, whether they were outdoors or inside and behind what kind of wall, etc. And uh, so they got a very, that's a very important study. Uh, and it leads the Radiation Effects Research Foundation, for example, to claim categorically that there will be no discernible health effect from Fukushima. First, no one died from radiation at Fukushima, and, and, and no one got enough of a dose, according to the Radiation Effects Research Foundation, to, to show up in any fingerprint at all in, the, in their lifetime uh, of, of any discernible effect. Same so is true of, of Chernobyl, actually. The, the 350,000 people who were eventually evacuated, who all got much higher doses of radiation than anybody at Fukushima, uh, there is no discernible health effect in that population after 23 uh, years. Uh, this is World Health Organization has been following it right from when it happened. And actually, they say the people should have been left where they were because the, the social uh, effects of moving them into tenement blocks around Kiev has resulted in more suicides and alcoholism and drug addiction and, and, and crime and uh, family disruption. Uh, and, and abuse and all that sort of thing uh, 
they should have been left where they were in their idyllic little country homes uh, because actually the, the wild it's turned back into a wilderness because they took all the people out. Now there's a hundred wolves living there, and they seem to be quite healthy. Well, if if we just roll this back a step, the two bombs that were dropped on the Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, down the road, subsequent to it, there. I understand there was an incidence and an uptick in all sorts of cancers and and birth defects as well. Well, that, that's anecdotal. Uh, that, that Radiation Effects Research Foundation actually studied the actual people with real names and and real life histories, and they 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 found just barely one percent more uh, incidents of what could have been related to the bombs. So it it, it is it isn't as if it it caused a mass uh, effect in the people, and and it 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 gave us a much better understanding of how radiation works. Basically, if it doesn't kill you within the first fairly short time, you're liable to have a fairly normal life. <clears throat> Your body will heal itself. Our, 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 you know, our, what about the, the radioactive the isotopes that mimic calcium or mimic iodine and collect in the bones and thyroid and, and cause problems down the road? That doesn't happen? Uh, not much, No. Uh, everybody, all of us do have uh, strontium-90 in our teeth, uh, which is still the remnants of atmospheric nuclear testing. Uh, the, the, the two bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki were nothing compared to the, I forget how many, it was over a thousand nuclear weapons were detonated in the atmosphere, and each one of those had the same amount of radiation and more. The Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs were relatively small. Some of those things they set off at the Bikini Atoll, and the Russians, they were up into the 20 megaton range, uh, so that there, there was a there, there was a lot of strontium 90 uh, put into the global uh, ecosystem, and it has a a half life of uh, I'm just trying to remember now strontium 90 half life is it 30 years I think so, and uh, so it so it's, it you know it takes 300 years for it to taper down to virtually zero, so there there's still you know, like a quarter of the strontium-90 from the nuclear test is still in the global environment somewhere, and some of it's in our teeth. But it isn't enough to be of any concern. Well, and if we... You, you, you know, th th these things are all... It, it, radiation is very similar to to chemicals in, in the sense that the poison is in the dose. You have to get a certain level of dose. And that's, that is because what most people don't understand is our bodies have a cellular repair mechanism. And... So some people say any amount of radiation is harmful. Well, it's true that any amount of radiation can cause damage, but if your body repairs itself faster than the damage is being caused, there is no net damage. And that is why the zero uh, threshold theory of radiation is wrong. If our, if our bodies were incapable of repairing any damage that was done to them, then if you did some damage, it would be permanent. But when you damage your body, like as when you, you know, I just fell off my bike and gave myself some beauty of raspberries on my elbows and knees, and uh, they're healing, though. And that is my body's cellular repair mechanism. And you get a radiation burn, it can heal. And it doesn't, doesn't necessarily, or actually very unlikely, will have any lasting effect because you've healed. And it, it, it is just like a burn. It's, it's not... Uh, you know, people have 
an idea about radiation that it's fundamentally different from other things that you get exposed to. The sun is radiation. That is why it burns you. And if you laid, if you laid in the sun full on for eight hours without having had a previous tan, just, you know, take your white little uh, body out there in the sun and lay there for eight full hours, you, you're liable not to survive just from that. And so people don't understand that we are bombarded by radiation all the time and always have been. And when life began, the, the world was actually much more radioactive than it is today because a lot of it has already decayed. And once it decays, it's not there anymore. And most people don't realize that the reason the Earth is hot in the middle is because of radioactive decay. It's not, not no other reason. That's why it's hot there is because the radium and uranium and thorium in particular are decaying and making heat and making it into a molten core of the Earth at 8,000 degrees Celsius. And, uh, and you don't have to go down very far to start running into that heat. As a matter of fact, ground source heat pumps are using some of that heat that's coming up. So you could say ground source heat pumps also use the solar energy that the Earth absorbs from the sun, but they're also using the nuclear energy that's coming up from the bottom. And in fact, solar energy is nuclear energy. So you can say really that ground source heat pumps are being run 100% on nuclear energy. Uh, just a different kind than the ones in a nuclear power plant. Well, if we were to, to go back in time, <clears throat> excuse me, to 1969, if yeah. we were to go back in time to 69. Um, I love going back in time. I really do like reminiscing about those days because they were heady. Well, knowing now, believing now, if you did then, would you still have jumped on the boat and, and gone north to Amchitka? You bet I would. I'm jumping on a boat here today in Toronto uh, in my campaign to allow golden rice to be fed to children who are dying by the millions from vitamin A deficiency. So, I'm, yes, I'm, I've always been ready to get on the boat if it's the right boat. And, and you know, in, in a way, uh, sometimes people say when they're commenting on my history that I left Greenpeace because I thought they became too extreme in their tactics. Uh, and that is not why, although I, I actually don't believe to ch in chaining yourself to other people's things because it provokes a violent reaction from them. I've always felt that pacifism is not only about being nonviolent yourself, but it's also about not provoking a violent reaction from the other side. And, and Gandhi went over that line a couple of times himself. Uh, but that's just, I, I think you should sit there until they come and, and say you're under arrest and then you should go peacefully. Uh, that's my form of nonviolence, and that I'm always ready to do that if it's for the right cause. The reason I left Greenpeace was not about tactics; it was about policy, about the issue that they were the issues that they were starting to go astray on in my belief. And so it's really really important to separate tactics from issues because it, it, armed struggle is, is is valid in some issues. Apartheid. I, I agree I agree that it was okay for armed struggle to get rid of apartheid. But if your issue is phony baloney, then no tactic is, is, is justified, not even nonviolence, because it's a, a wrong issue. And so, uh, you know, for example, the, uh, the, the, the campaign against nuclear energy that we conducted back in those days, is, that's the only issue I now believe I was wrong about back then. Uh, I, I, I'm totally still against killing whales and baby seals, and I'm totally against putting toxic waste into the air and 
water, and I'm totally against nuclear weapons, but I'm not against nuclear energy because I think we made a mistake in lumping nuclear energy in with nuclear weapons as if everything nuclear was evil, when in fact nuclear medicine is actually a really important part of our health system, and it's it's a beneficial use of of the technology. And I, I came to understand how how so many technologies can be used for both good and evil. I mean, it all started with a club being used either as a hammer or a weapon. Uh, well, and, that's and, fair enough. I mean, it's like being opposed to electricity and, and not using lights because of rail guns, you know, or having an objection to magnetism as a result of the existence of rail guns and electromagnetic weapons. I mean, they're two different things. And the, as you say, there's a tool, and to what purpose is it put? Maybe exactly. if we jump from from the, the testing to the whales and the seals, because I don't want to take up all of your day, although I will if you let me, um, mm -hmm. but I don't want to skip over Greenpeace. I mean, you were a director of Greenpeace International and president of Greenpeace Canada, um, and we haven't quite arrived at that stage yet, but from protesting the H-bomb testing in, in Amchitka, uh, from the Don't Make a Wave Committee, that eventually changed into, or when uh, Nixon stopped that, that testing in Amchitka, then it morphed into Greenpeace. And then the... Well, we had, we, had, we had named our boat The Greenpeace to go to Amchitka, so the, the word had, had come into existence, but we were still the Don't Make a Wave Committee was the name of our organization, but the newspapers were then all reporting that The, that, 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 that the Greenpeace was headed to Amchitka uh, with these 12 volunteers on it. And Captain Cormac, and so uh, we we did get the word Greenpeace into the in, into the popular press while we were on our first campaign. But as you say, then President Nixon, shortly after they detonated that bomb, we didn't stop that one. But it, and he announced an end to the series, so we won. And there, most people coming back from that first voyage went back to their normal lives, but a few of us. Uh, I, I was still doing my PhD at the time, but I had a pretty flexible schedule. And particularly Ben and Dorothy Metcalf uh, and Bob Hunter stayed involved and Rod Marining and Lyle Thurston. A few of us decided, let's keep this thing going. And so what should we do next? And Ben Metcalf said, it's got to be the French nuclear testing at Muro in French Polynesia, where they're still testing in the atmosphere. And we put out a media release saying our next campaign will be the sale of both from New Zealand to Muroa, 2,500 miles in the South Pacific. We had no boat, we had no captain, and we only had 9,000 bucks in the bank, 3,000 of which we used advertising what we were going to do next. And uh, lo and behold, this guy named David McTaggart phoned us from New Zealand. He was an expatriate Canadian, a brilliant entrepreneur who had dropped out and was sailing around the South Seas for seven years in his little boat, little sailboat, the Vega. And he said, I want to go in there and challenge the French because they're cordoning off international waters, and I don't agree with that. And so uh, he wasn't necessarily a peacenik. Uh, he, he was a sailor, had been an entrepreneur, but he didn't like the idea that France could just say, okay, we're going to blow off an atomic bomb. No one can come within 200 miles or whatever it was of the atoll because you're liable to get radiation on you. And they were enforcing that. And so his idea was, I'm going to go in there. Because at that point, they only had the 12-mile limit. The 200-mile the, the, uh, the limit had not come into existence yet. Uh, and so uh, he sailed his boat there two years in a row, at the end of which the French agreed to go underground. And that was the end of 
of large-scale atmospheric nuclear testing, except for the Chinese set off a couple more mm-hmm. after that. But that was basically the end of it, and, uh, and we won. So what are we going to do now? Well, actually, there was a hiatus. We had sort of a board of directors in waiting uh, for a while because there didn't seem to be any obvious thing to do next. Um, and then this guy, Paul Spong, uh, Dr. Paul Spong, a uh, whale scientist, uh, the scan of the killer whale at the uh, yes, Vancouver he'd, Aquarium. Yeah, he'd, he'd been the first trainer or the first person to really interact with a captive killer whale or orca, as we call them now, because uh, I mean they do kill fish and seals, but they're not really natural Fair born enough. killers. Yeah, um, they're not criminals in that. <laughs> <laughs> it's an emotive name, though. I mean, I like the name, but um, yeah, yeah orcas. And, and so great. these orcas, they, this he he. he he found a lot about whales, and then he started learning about what was going on with whales around the world and how they were still being slaughtered by the tens of thousands every year. And he came to us, to Bob Hunter and I, and he says, you guys are the only environmentalists that know how to go in a boat, right? Because we'd gone to Lanchica, and uh, David had gone to Maroa, and it had all, all been sea, sea-going campaigns, whereas most environmentalists knew how to hold a placard in a march downtown, but that would be about it. And uh, so we, we, he came to us and says, you guys have to lead the campaign to save the whales and go out there and stop it and get in front of the harpoon. Oh, great, Paul. That sounds like a walk in the park. And so Bob and I said, yes, this is what we got to do next. And so this caused quite a schism in the, in, in the founding group because people like Irving Stowe and Jim Bolin, they're, they're Quaker peacenik, you know, peace activists. And they don't give much of a darn about a big piece of blubber floating around on the ocean. Well, a question for you. You know, just to jump back a little bit to uh, the French and Miruela, on the Vega, um, French commandos pretty badly beat uh, Captain uh, McTaggart, didn't they? Yeah, well, the the first year they rammed his boat and gave it a lot of damage. He had to get it repaired over the winter. The second year, they boarded him in, a, in Zodiac Inflatables. Commandos boarded him and beat him with truncheons and, and poked one in his eye yeah. and ca- caused him to have permanent damage to that eye. Uh, but Anne-Marie Horn, who was one of the four crew members, was forward. he was in the back of the boat and she was forward and came up through a forward hatch with a camera and took pictures of this beating. And the and they denied it friend, occurred. He hurt himself falling, they said, or something to yes, that effect, they said, didn't they? They, they, said, they said he had hurt himself falling on the deck, whereas Anne-Marie had taken the film canister, no digital back then, taken the film canister out and hid it in her privates. And, and the French did seize the camera, but they didn't realize she'd taken the film out of it. And the next day, that film that was published, of the, those photos of the beating, uh, and they're very graphic. I mean, it's just no question what's going on in these pictures. David's hunched over, and these guys are beating him with truncheons. And so that was kind of embarrassing to the French. Well, it's terrible. And also, this is occurring in international waters. And you mentioned the uh, the fact that there was no 200-mile limit then. And I forget what's it called, the... Uh, the UN International Law of the Sea, something like that that came around later. Yes. <clears throat> People may not realize or remember, you know, and as you mentioned in your book, not only were the French cordoning off 200 well, international waters for their open air testing in Murrowella, but beyond that, um, deep sea whaling was occurring, fa- uh, whaling factories existed, 
and just 12 miles off the coast of California, just over the horizon, as you mentioned in your book, um, the Russian whaling fleet was right there. Yeah, unbeknownst to the American public, of course, the CIA knew they were there uh, because these whaling factory fleets were also bristling with electronic surveillance equipment. They were using, I guess the CIA had their own room on board, uh, and they were using these factory fleets to listen in to what was going on in the States. Um, but uh, it, it is amazing that it was we it was our campaign that brought the American people's attention to the fact that these huge factory whaling fleets and, and, and the Save the Whales movement had already started quite strongly in the United States, but no one had a clue that this was happening right at their doorstep. Well, 12 miles. So, I mean, a person could literally row their boat 12 miles and hit a Russian whaling ship. Well, they were they were actually more like 20 or 30 miles offshore. And, and you really can't see over that horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that they were out of sight. Um, and, and, and they're big fleets, you know, great. The factory ship is a big boat, like seven, 800 feet long. And, and the, uh, they're like big cruise ships size. And, and then there's these, all these, these harpoon boats are not, not small either. They're over a hundred feet long and they're powerful because they have to be able to go as fast as a sperm whale. But, you know, going and, uh, from, from mining to nuclear testing to whales, how did that transition occur? Cause the save the whales campaign was, a uh, an international campaign that, that everyone still remembers and is still many people are still passionate about. How, how did that transition occur? Well, that is what really put us on the map. The transition occurred from my perspective. Well, Paul Spong came to Bob and I and said, you guys are going to save the whales next because you can go on the ocean. That's how, that's how it occurred. And the, how it occurred in my mind though, was I thought this is great because all we've done so far has been really pretty much a one-issue group, and we're focusing on a rather dour subject, the mass extermination of humanity. And the Saving the Whales campaign is like, I said, like, you know, we're holding death out on one hand. Here now we can hold life, hope for life out on the other hand, and give people something uh, more uh, beautiful to think about than about just everybody dying in a Holocaust. So... I think that's, that's what it did for me, was it turned us into a, a, a not a one-issue group anymore. And as Greenpeace evolved, that's exactly what happened. It flowered into every aspect of environmentalism. And, and as I say, it was, it was only later when it started to go in directions that I didn't agree that I had to leave. But during that time of blossoming uh, from the church basement, and six years later, we have an international board of directors and offices in 20 countries. And six years after that, we have $100 million a year coming in and, and campaigns on every aspect of environmentalism. So it was quite a ride. Uh, and it, it, as I say, it was, it was a very heady, very uh, powerful experience to grow up in that and, and see it evolve and be in the driver's seat uh, through the whole thing, or at least one of the directors, and at times uh, the leader of many of those campaigns. So well, the I, photos I, from that are, are stirring, too. There are shots of, uh, of you and your team in Zodiacs and going in amongst the whaling ships because the Japanese and Russian whaling fleets were very active in our waters, and harpoons being shot literally over your heads with the rope trailing behind them. Um, there must have been some, well, some pretty exciting moments. There were lots of exciting moments, and there were lots of good times. Uh, one of the things that, 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 uh, that kind of 
concerns me about the direction the environmental movement has gone uh, since those early days is it's kind of lost its joy. Uh, we were happy. Uh, we said, let the revolution be a celebration. We sang songs about saving the whales all the time. There was lots of people who could play guitars, and after dinner on, on the ships, we'd be singing for hours and drinking beer and maybe smoking a little pot and uh, just having a grand old time saving the world. And uh, it, it, it's kind of turned more into a sort of hair shirt, you know, flail yourself with branches, kind of sackcloth and ashes kind of deal. And that that is not for me. I mean, I, I want to have a good time in this life, and I want to do some good things while I'm at it. Uh, but I'm not going to go around tugging at my forelock and moaning and groaning about the end of the universe. You know, and that's that seems to be what's happened to it is it's it's become an apocalyptic kind of thing. And even even though the real apocalypse was the threat of all-out nuclear war, which is very much less likely now than it was back then. And so we, we had something to, to complain about, uh, but we didn't complain. We just did something about it and had a good time doing it. Well, and and I see your point. I mean, there's no point, you know, flagellating ourselves, if that's the word, and, and, and gnashing our teeth. It's important to be active and pay attention, though. And, and I think that's what, at that time, uh, you and your team did. You know, and also, too, just to bookend this conversation about... Um, well, about uh, when you change direction towards whaling and then sealing after that. But then later on, when the Rainbow Warrior was uh, sunk, that was 1985 in New Zealand, it was, uh, again, that the open-air uh, testing in Miroroa was, was being undertaken by the French. And and you were on the ship that day uh, of the night when it was uh, detonated by well, that, two members of the French Secret Service. By this I'm, time, the French, the French had been testing underground for about 10 years. It was about yes. 85, 75 when they uh, stopped atmospheric testing and started drilling holes in the atoll and put, lowering the bombs down into the coral. Oh, okay, excuse them, me. My mistake. Letting them off yeah. down there. And then, and yes, I had, we had a group of us. I was one of the international directors at this point, and a group of us directors and, and, and counselors from the various countries of, we had Greenpeace was divided into two. There was Europe, because there were so many countries in Greenpeace Europe that they would have run the whole thing if we hadn't had some constitutional framework for having uh, having them have less power in around the board table. So we had ANZUSCA, which was Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States, and that those four countries uh, had kind of equal power to the eight or so European countries. And, and, and that's just how the, the, the Constitution was organized. And so the Anzuska directors came to Auckland, New Zealand, to welcome the Rainbow Warrior on its way to a protest at Mururoa, because we were still protesting the underground nuclear tests as well. Yes. And, 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 and all around the world, we were protesting nuclear tests into the mid... And long after I left Greenpeace, they kept doing it until the mid-'90s, when it finally basically ended everywhere. And... Uh, but in 85, the French sent a team of eight people uh, who ended up on a sailing boat, uh, and then they had a little Zodiac and two uh, scuba divers from the equivalent of the Navy SEALs from France uh, dove under the hull of the Rainbow Warrior and attached two large plastic explosives with timers, 
And uh, I was on the boat that day. The boat arrived that day. We welcomed it in. We went and sat in the galley with the crew and talked it up. And then we went and, and at about 5 o'clock. We went and had our own director's meeting over dinner. And then we went to a billet uh, where we were we were sleeping in a rowing club that had sort of this dormitory in it. And uh, about right about midnight, we had all just sort of tucked in. And the phone rang at about Five minutes at past twelve, and obviously the bomb had bombs had been set to go off at midnight, uh, and we were told the Rainbow Warrior was bombed and sunk at the dock, and Fernando Pereira, the photographer, was missing. So we called a cab, and all of us got down to the dock around twelve thirty, quarter to one, to quite a scene of floodlights and cops and ambulances and journalists and all this, and. Uh, we found out the story then. What had happened is that about half the crew was still ashore at the pub when the rest of the crew that was on the boat was all sitting around the galley table having a couple of beers, and boom, this explosion. The skipper, John, goes and looks down into the engine room and sees it's flooding, and so says everybody off the boat, because they were tied up at the dock, so they just had to basically step off the boat onto the dock. Yeah, just 20 feet of water, for, yeah. But Fernando had $10,000 worth of camera gear in his bunk, which was at the rear of the ship. And the second bomb had been placed to destroy the propeller rudder assembly. The first bomb had been placed by the engine room compartment to flood the boat and sink it. And so Fernando said, just a minute, and ran, raced back. Down he went in to get his stuff, and boom, the second bomb went. Probably within 90 seconds or less of the, of, you know, in that sort of time frame of the first one because it was all they all just happened very fast. And I, I still to this day believe those bombs were probably meant to go off at the same time and that they didn't synchronize the watches all that well. And uh, or one ran slower than the other or something, but something happened to cause those bombs to go off at slightly different times and that's why Fernando died. And uh, it was a very sad situation for everybody and everybody was was up, was extremely distraught. Uh, of the crew members, and uh, and and I had then I was the senior person there from from the Greenpeace organization. I was right on the phone with McTaggart, who was our chairman at this time, and uh, he was at the International Whaling Commission meetings in England, and I explained to him what had happened, and he knew it was the French right away. Of course, we did. It wasn't long till they found a little boat on the other side of the harbor that said "Made in France" on it. And uh, but everybody had all the French team had escaped except they did catch two in the airport and they ended up going to jail for a short time. But France threatened trade sanctions and so New, New Zealand was kind of a bit powerless to do much about it. So first act just, of terror. There was a little boat. There was a little boat found. Tell me about that again, please. Well, the frogmen, uh, the, the scuba divers who set the bombs, uh, abandoned their little boat on the other side of the harbor. Yeah. Uh, after they put the bombs on the Rainbow Warrior, and it actually said "Made in France" on this little inflatable. And, and so, who know, found I think, and, and one of you guys found that boat? No, no, the police found the it. The police found that boat. I see. Made in yeah. France, and that was the first clue. That was the first clue. That was a pretty good one too. <laughs> As clues go, that's a pretty good clue. And and it's so it's only circumstantial though. It could have been Australians using a, a French French well, boat. You know, and, and that's fair enough. And but, but the two uh, agents were were found uh, fleeing the com the country at uh, the airport though and arrested there, 
Yeah, not the guys who put not the guys who put the bombs on though. It was uh, it was more senior operatives that mm-hmm. were caught and arrested and charged with murder. But then France threatened sanctions and it was reduced to manslaughter. They were given six or eight years in jail. Uh, they spent a short time in a jail in New Zealand, and then France convinced New Zealand to let them go to Noumea, which is an island, French-owned island nearby, and they were transferred to Noumea, and not very long after, they were given a hero's welcome in Paris and free. So that's just it for you. But, but, but Greenpeace got $8 million in, a, in an award because uh, it went to the UN Secretary General for uh, mediation arbitration. And... Uh, Greenpeace got $8 million in damages, and we believe the family of Fernando, Fernando who was estranged from him at the time, his wife and son, mm-hmm. uh, we believe they received a similar settlement. Well, yes, I hope so. Um, so and that's, well, that's terrible. What impact did that, that have on you and, and others at that time? I mean, to discover that a, uh, a foreign government had destroyed your ship and killed a team member, that must have been shocking. It was, yeah, a lot of the other members were in uh, visible, uh, you know, distraught. Uh, it's it's not the kind of thing that really affects me that much. I just deal with the situation. Uh, you know, I, 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 I don't get all emotional about stuff like that. Um, it just happens. That's what the French did. They're a bunch of bastards. Uh, but they did it. Uh, and, and they it, admitted it, to it, it later on as well. Well, a Probably. lot later on. Yeah, and apologize. Yeah, it, but it, to acknowledge they, the guilt is the important thing. Yes. Yes, but and 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 and, and it, it was bad for them to do that. I mean, it really helped us and really hurt them. So they were not only the, were they nasty, but they were also stupid from a tactical point of view. Well, at that point, then your your career and with Greenpeace, you know, had spanned you know mining and whaling and sealing and and nuclear testing. Um, and looking back on that time, um, what do you make of it all now? Well, I think we did a lot of foundational stuff. I think we basically set the agenda for the environmental movement worldwide. Uh, uh, you know. It, I, I but but I don't and I I sort of think I understand why it, it a lot of a lot of it went bad in the in the end because maybe it was because there was too much power and too much fame and it went to their heads or you know one way I describe it there's a number of a, a number of elements to the evolution one is that in my estimation as time went on Greenpeace which started as a very much a humanitarian organization concerned for the survival of civilization and the threat of all-out nuclear war lost its humanity. Uh, and, and by the time I left in 85, humans were considered the enemies of the Earth now by the environmental movement. And a lot of people were into this sort of collective self-loathing about how there's too many people... You know, I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with me today and, and talk with me today. I've got a lot of respect for for a lot of the work that you've done, and and I look forward to knowing more about you and also learning more about these topics at a future date. That's great. Um, did you did you did you see the allowgoldenricenow.org website? You know, I, I looked at a number of uh, websites, but I didn't explore them in, in much detail. Meeting as quickly as right. we did, I thought we might be meeting a few weeks from now. 
Um, okay. Although when you said you'd meet today, I thought, well, I should take advantage of this opportunity and and focus on what I do now, which is what I do know now, which is your early days. Um, but I'll certainly That's be. That's great, Greg. Well, I, I have to run because I've got quite a bit of planning to do here today, and I'm <laughs> glad we were able to do this early in the day. Well, thank you. And you've got another interview coming up in just a couple of hours, don't you? I do. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. And uh, before we part, did you have any questions or, or concerns? None at all, Greg. Just I look forward to hearing myself on your podcast. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Have a great day. You too. Bye now. Bye now.